Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, uh, definitely better than the last time we talked. Uh, so I guess, I guess that's uh, worth something. I, I would say like marginally better given um, all that we've learned in the last few days from you know for our listeners if you haven't heard our last episode yet we recorded uh in the hours following the invasion of the u.s capitol on wednesday and i and i wanted to you know before we get into our our content today we're going to do i think a little more reflection on what happened on wednesday but what we've learned about what happened on wednesday has just become more horrifying the more we learn about it (laughs) I mean, I don't know. To, to me, it was always horrifying. <laughs> so it's just like I, I, I haven't changed my opinion uh, much at all. So on today's podcast, we are going to preview the 2021 legislative session that's going to start on Monday in Atlanta. And while the dust has settled on the 2020 election cycle, it's likely that many of the trends that we saw on the campaign trail are going to continue to drive politics under the gold dome this year. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to check in on some of the specific issues that are likely to be discussed at the Capitol um, during this session. Uh, As always, the legislature must uh, pass a budget to keep Georgia's government running. Uh, We're also likely to see a big fight uh, related to laws governing voting in this state, maybe a big fight within the Republican Party uh, dealing with absentee ballots. you know, if you were looking for Georgia politics to get boring, you're you're never going to get that wish. But before we get to that, just a few more thoughts on what happened at the at the Capitol last week. I said that I've gotten more alarmed by what happened because I think it was a little bit of a trick of the coverage and observing the event in real time that, to some extent, I think obscured some of the violence that happened at the Capitol on Wednesday, and since then. You know, I've seen a lot of videos, a lot of interviews with people who were there, really adding detail to what went on inside the Capitol, to uh, how violently protesters treated Capitol Police. I did see the video that led up to uh, the woman who was shot in the Capitol. It's really, I think, really just a matter of luck that it didn't turn out much worse uh, than the way it did on Wednesday. I, I agree with that in, entirely, Kyle. I think the things that have me feeling about the same as I did on Wednesday is, is first that I, I am actually surprised pleasantly at how quickly some of the insurrectionists have been faced with justice in the legal system. Uh, obviously, none of them have been tried or convicted as of yet, but many have been charged, many have been identified. I think that is only going to continue, I, at least for me, most of the prominent uh, faces of the insurrectionists, which of course we we do see their faces because they don't believe in wearing masks. Um, that they, they have been charged. And, and I, I was very disheartened on Wednesday night when they just walked out of the Capitol, like they hadn't done anything, you know, like threatened the, you know, national seat of, uh, of power and democracy in the United States. So on that, on that front, uh, I feel a little bit better. Regarding the fact that deaths have been confirmed, I, I as I, I as I mentioned when we recorded the first time, I watched this as it was happening, and I knew how violent this group was, and so I only I expected it was only a matter of time until my suspicions were confirmed that 
some people had died in, in this uh, national tragedy. Um, and, you know, finally, I think just being in Georgia, being in the South, and uh, reading uh, too many books about fascism <laughs> uh, as I have, um, have, have just like, I am aware of the dangerous and violent possibilities of uh, politics in a system where people start to disregard what the truth is. And um, I, I know I was sharing wildly today the piece by Timothy Snyder in the uh, New York Times. He is a author uh, on authoritarianism uh, in you know Eastern Europe and has shifted his focus unfortunately to the present due to uh, what has been happening and I think this piece was uh, very good at outlining exactly what I was thinking when I started to watch this <laughs> event uh, because I read all his books um, I, I, I very much have absorbed uh, uh, his analysis and worldview and I think uh, that is a excellent piece for looking at what happened and how to uh, think about it in, into the future because it, I, I have always been far more worried, not that that event would be successful, because I knew that this ramshackle of, you know, uncivically motivated people just like charging at the Capitol wasn't going to do anything. But I, I'm far more worried about the symbolic nature of it and what, you know, people 15 years from now uh, will, will be uh, viewing this event as if it is still something that is a lost cause to some on the far right rather than a national embarrassment like it is for most people. Luke, you want to tell us a little bit more about that essay and about this framing of, of the gamers versus the breakers. I think it actually speaks to a fault line within Republican politics in Georgia right now that may also play itself out in legislative session. Um, it It seems to be maybe one of the more important divisions within our politics that that we're learning about, um, given the events at the Capitol and, and where Republican politics goes moving forward. Yeah, I, I could not agree more that I think Snagger creates a very good framework here, which he is very good at in all of his work. Um, but what he uh, highlights in his essay is that he he divides the Republican Party as it stands into two different factions. Uh, right now, the gamers faction, which is the uh, one that we're most familiar with. It's the GOP we've been dealing with in Georgia and North Carolina and across the country. The people who, you know, they support democracy, they stand by election results, but they do everything they can to rig the system in the favor of the wealthy, to make it harder to vote, to curb the right to vote in the United States, to make it easier for their party to win as their current coalition shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And he identifies Mitch McConnell as the, the head of this faction. You know, I, I would, um, We'll, we'll discuss Georgia figures later, but that, that's that's us first faction. And then the second faction is the the breakers faction, which, of course, Donald Trump is the head of. But he also gives Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz a lot of prominence. In it. And and this is the faction of the Republican Party that has been building over the years. I mean, I, I would say this faction really emerged in earnest uh you know, around 2010 with the Obamas from Kenya movement, like the, all, all, all of those folks who basically reject democracy as it stands and the only legitimate election in their minds and what are, you know, ones in which Republicans wing everything. And, you know, this is the faction that has adopted the big lie, uh, of, you know, of Donald Trump, which is that, you know, not only that he won the election, but he won it in this giant, amazing landslide that was so impressive and, you know, magnificent that it had to be stolen, <laughs> you know, in, in enormous faction by the, the other uh, of, you know, the 
massive deep state coalition of Democrats and Republicans, uh, which I, I refer to as voters. Uh, that, that is the coalition I refer to that defeated Donald Trump, uh, just voters. But, you know, in, in these breakers mind and in, in this, uh, uh, you know, big lie, it is just it, that's just illegitimate and that the only legitimate result would be the continuation eternally of, of Donald Trump or supporters uh, of his uh, worldview uh, in in. Uh, this election. And so that that's that's sort of the two factions we're dealing with. And I, I think this is a, a good way for us to transition into uh, Georgia, because while at least so far, there have not been a big faction of powerful people in the breakers faction, what I think uh, where I come to, and I'd be curious if you if you think this is different, Kyle, is I feel like the I, I was genuinely surprised at how tough both Kemp and Raffensperger have been in the um, face of pressure by people who wanted them to overturn the election of just being, you know, like, no, like we're not going to do that and we're not going to entertain it. And, you know, because there's a lot of ways this could have gone differently. Uh, they, they could have both Raffensperger and Kemp said a lot more to the effect of, we agree with Donald Trump that this election was a fraud and a sham, even though we were overseeing it. And despite that, we have legal obligations and we just, we, there's nothing we can do, but we agree with him. And, and that's not what they did. Both, both camping Raffensberger have been quite clear, especially Raffensberger and his staff have been beyond explicit in saying that like, no, none of this happened and even suggesting it is laughable. I don't know what they're talking about. This is just insane. And um, I, I don't know how they could have been stronger in their condemnations uh, while still saying they support Donald Trump as a political candidate. They just don't support him and his, his you know lies about the election. And, and what I'm going to be watching, and I'm curious to see in this legislative session is how much are they willing to uh, continue to game the system, change the rules to make it easier next time for, for them to win and harder for the legitimate democratic result to occur where, you know, because I, I suspect they will pursue those options. But the thing that I also suspect will be happening is that people like uh, State Senator Burt Jones, who has been a strong advocate for Donald Trump and overturning the election, and others like him, uh, as they continue to push that this election was a fraud and push legislation to make it I, I, I mean, I can't even imagine what it will look like, but how will they uh, stand up to that local pressure uh, when it's it's not as clear what their legal obligations are or clear what the actual factual result uh, is as it was with the election? That 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 key dynamic, I think, is it's what's going on in Georgia uh, that will be interesting to watch. Yeah, and I think you know, we're going to watch that play out um, in the way that policies are considered in the legislature. Um, it was interesting earlier this week, House Speaker David Ralston had his annual press conference in the lead up to session. And I want to play a clip from that here. He gave what I think is a pretty clear vision on the direction he believes the Republican Party in Georgia needs to take. And it is one that is basically the opposite of what has been put forward by Burt Jones. It is one that is the opposite of what's been put forward uh, by Kelly Leffler and David Perdue in, in their failed Senate bids. Let's listen to David Ralston's vision for the Republican Party in Georgia. Our Republican Party, and frankly our government, is at its best 
when it is working for our people, when we address fundamental issues uh, that make people's lives better. We have to turn our attention from those seeking to divide us and focus our attention on the work that brings us together. Just this past year, our House and General Assembly tackled fundamental issues central to who we are as a people. It was the House and the Republican majority that led on the hate crimes bill, the maternal mortality bill, and the Paid Parental Leave Act, which I am hopeful that the Senate will take up and pass this year. In short, I believe strongly that the work of the Republican majority in this House is a model for our party going forward. We have shown that Georgians want leadership that follows a positive vision of our future and deals with issues that touch their daily lives. Luke, I think that was pretty unequivocal from the speaker, but there is a difference between telling that to the press in in before legislative session starts and actually executing that when Ralston has to deal with the Senate has to deal with uh, members of his own party in the in the Republican caucus who might model themselves after Burt Jones and Governor Kemp, who I sort of consider to be a bit of a wild card in all of this, um, unsure of where he will continue to position himself, given how uh, forceful he was in condemning Trump's rhetoric about the election uh, over the last couple of months. Yeah, I... I... I think Kemp is really the player to watch here because the state of Georgia is facing a lot of very tough situations. And, and I, we're going to get into it a little bit later, but like the economic forecast for Georgia is not as bad as you would think it would be. It's better than a lot of other states. Uh, but despite that, I mean, there's still a lot of problems going on in Georgia. The COVID pandemic continues to ravage the state much worse than many other states, our vaccine distribution is not going well. And a lot of this can be placed pretty firmly on Kemp's head because Kemp, from the beginning, took a very lax approach and he has basically been incredibly explicit in saying that he does not think that the government has a role in this, that he thinks that private sector is how you solve these things, not unified government action. And I, I, I think part of the reason why Democrats were successful on the uh, you know the presidential level and with these two senatorial runoffs is just how poorly this has been managed and how he reacts to that and how the other political players in Georgia react to that will be very interesting. Because as we discussed earlier in the year when we had smaller problems, we were very, you and I, Kyle, were very fascinated in the fights that were going to break out between David Rossi and Brian Kemp. And that never really had a chance to manifest itself because of the pandemic shutting down session midway through and the just, you know, DEFCON 1 level of crisis. Uh, there were a whole lot of decisions and choices to be made. And it was really just, uh, you know, very haphazardly cutting everything you possibly could because the house was on fire um, and the budget was, you know, completely destroyed. That That's really not the case right now. And there's going to be lots of decisions about how how these things get made because they're, they're just, this is all, this isn't operating in a vacuum. The legislative session will not be operating in a vacuum. And what the Republican Party faces now is on a statewide level, they are not doing very well and very well could, you know, face a 
democratic sweep of the statewide offices in 2022 if they're not careful. I'm definitely not saying that's a guarantee, but like it's a real possibility that they are actually having to consider and think about now in a way that in to you know 2020 they really weren't uh, going in 2020 they weren't, and so you know there are these existing feuds between Ralston and Kemp over the decision to. Uh, not, you know, the disastrous decision, uh, as we talked about last week, of picking Loeffler over Collins. Like, that race is going to happen again. Kemp will probably face a primary. And, like, how he, the point I'm trying to make in this long, drawn out thing is that, like, Kemp is going to have to navigate these things and make a decision. And I really think it comes down to uh, maybe a slightly more elaborate version of the gamers and the breakers situation. It, it, you know, it's like, is Kemp going to try to? continue to game the system and that's how he became governors by gaming the system when he was secretary of state or is he just going to throw it all out and go the full demagogue route which i mean in it's not hyperbolic to consider that just because i mean people forget (laughs) another thing that i think about when I saw the Capitol overrun by this mob was, you know, there's a time within people's lifetimes of the state of Georgia where Georgia had three governors because of a similar situation where no one could agree who had won this election and what the legal, who the legal governor was. So, I mean, there's a lot more he could do to break the system or is he going to go like more in the Ralston route of trying to like calm everybody down and put, put the ship back together. Yeah. I think, My anticipation is that for Governor Kemp, you'll see a return to his core agenda. And I think one thing that makes me hopeful about that is that his forceful condemnation of President Trump and his lies about the election, I think in some sense ruins Governor Kemp's credibility among Trump's most fervent backers, the ones who, if they weren't there in that crowd on Wednesday invading the U.S. Capitol. They they would have liked to have been. They're there in spirit. And I think that that's a very good thing, that his credibility may be ruined with those people, because in the interest of his own reelection, he's now got to broaden his supporter base. And I think in some sense that uh, facilitates him taking an approach of trying to take the temperature down, calm people down, return to some of the things that he campaigned on in his original campaign in 2018. We may hear more about teacher raises. We may hear more about, you know, conservative principles, shrinking government, um, things that are at least things that could be considered more broadly popular among the Republican coalition and, and maybe even things that would bring over some Democrats. And, I think he does that because he can't run an election in 2022 like Kelly Leffler ran hers. And so he benefits, I think, if he can make a challenger from the right look like a clown, look like Michael Williams from the 2018 governor's race. And in some sense, I think he steps into shoes that aren't unlike Casey Cagle's. That, I think, is a path forward for him and and sort of gives you a sense of of the kinds of issues he might champion and the kinds of pushes he might make in this legislative session. Yeah, I, I think that is totally possible. The, the thing that makes me worried is that in the past, Kemp has wanted to do what you just said, Kyle, I think. And that seems to be where his his initial political instincts brings him. But the thing that we saw in the abortion bill debate highlights my exact concern, which is, 
in that debate, we've, 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 we've talked about this before, so I'll be quick with it. But like he initially wanted the trigger legislation that would have just, you know, outlawed abortion in Georgia if the U.S. Supreme Court uh, took that action and instead went with the completely radical, crazy, not going to work option because that is what the base of the Republican Party want. And, and that is what, you know, the legislature eventually shoved through. And the thing that I find striking in that moment that I think bears thinking about in the moment we're in now is back when Deal was governor, we real we really had this Republican triumvirate of the governor, Nathan Deal, the House Speaker, David Ralston, and the Lieutenant Governor, Casey Cagle. And basically, they got together and they decided what was going to happen. And then that happened. And with very few exceptions, did anything even get through the legislature to the point where Deal would have to veto it if those three agreed on something and legislature still tried to do it anyway. There's very few exceptions where, where that it got to that point. And the thing that I haven't seen happen yet is a similar coalition between the two branches come together so that when the Republican base wants something, they can stop it. And I, I think the energy is going to be very, very strong from the Republican base to do crazy things. And while Kemp has shown a lot of spying, he deserves credit for this on standing up to Trump. I have not become convinced that he has enough spying to stand up to the base yet. And while Ralston is not wanting to do these things. If Kemp folds and says, yeah, let's do those things because he's afraid of losing a primary, or even if he believes some of them, then I don't think Ralston will be able to hold that tide back. Yeah, I think that is going to be the challenge. I think the other thing that I'm kind of looking for here is, are there any other changes in the Republican Party, the party structure, that would give you a sense of whether or not this push by Ralston to be a more solutions focused issue oriented party. Does that give, does that get any teeth by changing the staffing of the party? Uh, I thought it was notable that Eric Erickson conservative commentator called for the party chair, David Schaefer to resign. Um, there was a lot of finger pointing immediately in the aftermath of the Senate losses for the Republicans. Um, but absent those shifts in the structure of the party, absent them coming up with new leadership who would have similarly condemned President Trump for his lying about the election, then I think that you, you know, these divisions only grow deeper because there may be a policy apparatus and a governing apparatus between Kemp and Ralston and Duncan that doesn't want to give in to the base of the party. But if you have unchecked conservative media, who knows the type of media that, that President Trump is going to facilitate when he's out of office and, and wants to become politically relevant again. Um, and you have party officials that are willing to indulge that part of the that part of the base. I think that's where some of that pressure could come in and um, make it too much for for Ralston to hold back. Um, and I think that the main example there in terms of policy that we're going to see is this fight over whether or not to end no excuse absentee balloting in the state. Um, and so I want to play what Ralston said about this in a press conference the other day. Um, it was widely interpreted that he opposes ending no excuse absentee balloting in the state. And you'll hear why as he explains that in a second. He does give himself 
some wiggle room, though, that I that I think is worth discussing. Here's David Ralston's response when he was asked if he would support ending no excuse absentee balloting in this legislative session. No, I, 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 I you know, um, we, um, we we went to that in 2005 under a Republican General Assembly. Uh, I think here is my my goal on absentee ballots. Okay, I I think the level of security should be just the same for an absentee ballot as it is for in-person voting, or whether it's early voting or day of election voting. That's what I want to accomplish. Um, and um, you know, we, we might look at tightening up some of the, uh, uh, and, and maybe categorize some reasons, uh, but uh, you know, I, I want elections to be open, you know, and, and uh, but I want them to be fair, and I want them to be secure. Uh, Would be against this push to roll back absentee ballot being available to everybody. For no excuse, um, I'm going to be very. Uh, uh, I'll go to the my answer to the Mr. Pritchard's uh, question earlier. Somebody's going to have to make a real strong case to convince me otherwise. So, Luke, that was Ralston's view of that issue. He also in that press conference announced that he was going to form a House panel that would look at accusations of election fraud um, during the most recent election, although he described it as wanting to look forward and not backward. To me, though, there was, I would have liked for that to have been a little firmer. I don't know exactly what he means about uh, considering different categories. I think the formation of the panel um, in some ways is problematic because it does feel like he is giving in a little bit to the energy from the right side of his party uh, to continue this charade around election fraud. Um, you know, I don't know exactly how to interpret that, whether or not that's him sort of giving them a little and then being willing to step in and, and stop this from going overboard in the future or whether or not uh, the pressure is really building on him in a way that he won't be able to hold back. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm going to uh, potentially step in it, but hopefully I'll drag myself out of it uh, by the end of what I'm saying is I'm less concerned by the creation of a panel because the one argument that I think the cruises and the Hollies of the world make that, I, I have not been encouraged by the way the exact way Democrats respond to it is the argument of like all these people are saying that there was fraud in the election and we're telling them to shut up and like maybe we should look into it. And so it's one of those things that if this is a way to look into how elections in Georgia work, and reconfirm and be loud and reconfirming that it's super secure and that there were no problems, then I think that is an okay thing to do, an appropriate thing to do, and you know would give more ammunition to uh, people saying that the election was not rigged. Because like in the because for me, I thought it was an incredibly powerful talking point that I think it was the GBI looked at Cobb County and found only two ballots out of the thousands and thousands of ballots in Cobb County had any problems or irregularities whatsoever. And I mean, like that is a great data point to have because while I ha I know because I've read about it and 
people I trust and experts I trust have said, like elections are very, very secure. And I know the procedure to the point where I know I feel like it would be very hard to do any amount of fraud whatsoever. Having that data point of two out of thousands in Cobb County is a really useful data point. And so if it's not a fishing exposition where they're going to, you know, <laughs> right, call up the AJC or try to get a front page headline when they find one fake vote in, you know, middle of nowhere, Georgia, then like, I think it's good. But I also am worried about what you were hitting on, Kyle. And this comes back to my point about Kemp is I worry that this is them opening up the door for, you know, the breaker faction to push through to find ways to just you know say the whole system's rigged and flogged and it's all you know it's all a sham and i i think ralston could do better to you know say that the elections in georgia work really really well and i don't see a point in us pursuing this policy change and i i mean i think that is what he wants to say and he seems to be trying to find the right way to navigate um, this this thorny issue for him because he is, has to keep his caucus together and in line, and this is obviously something that the loudest part of his caucus is obsessed with right now. And so him just shutting them down entirely probably is not on the table for him. Which is just you know another <laughs> uh, another quick aside is just like uh, the cost of not having a Democratic House right now that we're we're having to talk about this. This is something we have to care about. It, it is because the Republicans are obsessed with, you know, uh, pursuing these allegations of fraud that are completely unsubstantiated by facts. And uh, unfortunately, that that's the cost. Yeah, let's actually shift to Democrats here. What role do you think that they should play in this legislative session? They, politically, they somewhat benefit from how fractured the Republican Party is. Um, we noticed this at the end of the Senate campaign that um, all of this focus on on election fraud and who was really committed to backing President Trump, that really left a vacuum that Democrats filled on basically everything that was issue oriented, everything that dealt with um, the real life experiences of people in the middle of a pandemic and in the middle of an economic crisis. What role do you think Democrats ought to play, state Democrats ought to play in this legislative session, maybe pushing back against election fraud, but but also the other issues that, that Republicans aren't talking about when they are talking about election fraud? Well, yeah, I go back to where I started, where Kemp has a lot of problems. The state of Georgia has a lot of problems. And I think being focused on those problems and pro- providing solutions to those problems is where Democrats should have their focus on because like election systems in Georgia are not perfect. Like I am ecstatic that we won these two Senate elections, but like we won them in a runoff and you know, facts are David Perdue had led in the November election. If we hadn't had runoffs, he would still be a Senator and that would make me very sad. And despite that, I still think we should find a way to reform our runoff system in, in Georgia. Uh, I, I, I don't know what the best system is there. I, I kind of lean towards um, instant runoff voting, but I, I feel like there are a lot of election reforms on the positive side that we can do of expanding the franchise, of making it easier to vote uh, and without sacrificing security. Because, I mean, that's one thing I think Democrats need to be very, very clear on is that we want to expand the franchise, and there are many ways to do it without sacrificing 
the security of the election system, because that is the false choice that Republicans are constantly throwing up. So that's the first thing. And then, you know, going back to where you started, Kyle, was how the Republicans basically seeded policy conversation in the runoff. And they were explicitly about how terrible and awful their opponents were and how, you know, Donald Trump had been cheated. I, I, I think for Democrats to focus on those real issues and try to get those things done, I think in Georgia, there is an opportunity, despite the fact that we hold the minority in both chambers of the legislature, I think there is a real opportunity for Democrats to propose some things that maybe some of the Republicans who are trying to calm things down and trying to have the state be a functioning you know, unit of government uh, will we'll take up on and take seriously. And even if they don't take everything that we propose, even if they take pieces of it, like that's a win for me, like having some improvements made because Georgia is just not doing a good job right now. And I think um, they we really need to do that. Yeah, I think a more specific focus on the hardship that people are facing amidst this pandemic, I think would be a good approach for Democrats. You know, to date in the actual governing, particularly around the pandemic that we've seen from Republicans, there's there's basically two trends that have emerged. One is that they have uh, given legal liability to corporations who may put their their customers or their employees at risk of getting COVID-19. And the second is that the restrictions on gatherings, on um, activities that would facilitate the spread of COVID, that those restrictions have been relatively weak from the governor. And that even though we are still in a place where we have record-setting case numbers, we have hospitals that are under tremendous stress right now, trying to provide treatment to people who have COVID-19. Despite those things, it doesn't look like we're going to get more stringent restrictions from the governor's office in this state. And all of that, I think, has left people dealing with much more hardship uh, economically and with their health than is really getting attention in our politics right now. Um, I think Republicans are going to be excited about the state of the economy in general. Obviously, our economy hasn't gone through the same kind of downturn that states that had more stringent restrictions have gone through. Um, But those specific things where Republicans have let people down while they haven't let businesses down amidst this pandemic, I think are key messages for Democrats that they should be sending. And legislative session is is a good opportunity for them to do that as they sort of set the agenda and lay out what democratic governance looks like after the 2022 elections, if voters decide to give them power in this state. Because the thing that you saw, and, and we'll talk about the Democrats being unified here, the thing that Democrats feel very unified on is the operation that was put together by Stacey Abrams and other voting rights groups um, to turn out voters in this state. I think that's a really strong unifying force in democratic politics to build on that by setting the message of what democratic governance would mean on the state level, I think is an important task for Democrats in the legislature and anybody who's thinking about running for statewide office to do that in the next, you know, six to 12 months. Yeah, I, I totally agree, because as someone who has you know, been working on Democratic campaigns for a long time, I have not had the honor and pl- privilege of working uh, for Fair Fight or Abrams directly uh, since uh, 2014 when I was an intern in her her office. Um, but, you know, the the one thing I, I do agree on that everyone's pretty happy about is just how the party has been getting better and the you know constellation of organizations around the party have been getting a lot better at talking to voters, turning out voters, 
you know, messaging in general. But I, I think there's a lot of improvement that we need to see on the state house level in the general assembly uh, in general, so that we are doing a better job of messaging what we would do. Because I think the stakes have been communicated very effectively by all these organizations and the importance of voting and the importance of getting involved. But we got to start showing some results and I mean, I, I think we're at a point because we are in the minority that results are, you know, it doesn't have to be a past bill, but just a proposed real substantive proposal, you know, I think would would go a long way in showing like this is what we would do in the same way where we're knocking us off. We're very clear that if they won, the $2,000 checks would, you know, be coming. I think there are plenty of opportunities for Democrats to do the same thing. Uh, you know, on the state level, um, the I, I think our unification is is pretty strong right now. I'm sure there's some small smaller things, but it, it, there aren't these big ideological debates like there are in Washington that I'm aware of. Um, the only thing I'm really worried about when it comes to the unification of the party uh, is uh, redistricting. This is a very complicated topic, one we will be talking about a lot uh, over the next year uh, because. You know, the census results have not even been released yet, so there's really no telling uh, what exactly the new lines in Georgia will look like. But the, I think, the first brush analysis that is useful to talk about right now is the fact that it's my basic assumption that there are very, very, very few Democrats who are at risk of losing their seats just because of the nature of how intense the gerrymander was last cycle and the places where Democrats have gained. Just frankly, these are just a lot of places where the Democratic vote is already quite condensed and Democrats are winging seats by pretty big margins. And on the flip side, there are lots of Republicans who are probably feeling a little antsy right now in their districts and concerned about their future prospects. And so I think it will be a lot harder for Republicans than they might have thought before this election to to actually gerrymander the state in a way that like gets them a supermajority again. But there there might be some Democrats they can pick off, uh, you know, by offering them protection and their redistricting. I just I, I just think that number is probably pretty small because as we've talked about before, as is a phenomenon nationwide, but I think it's especially true in Georgia. The places where Democrats are doing better keep growing. The places where Republicans are doing better keep shrinking. And that just makes it really hard to do that math in a way that equals a lot of new Republican seats if you're also trying to protect the incumbents you have. And I I think that balancing act is going to be really interesting to watch on both sides of the aisle, frankly, because a very traditional uh, power player tool uh, in the wheelhouse of the majority party is is how you draw those lines, how you redistrict, because that's something even the members of the majority care about, uh, and that will be a tool for Ralston and Kemp and other parts of the Republican leadership who really will be the ones drawing these maps. That will be tools for them to use to keep the party in line this session and that I, I am sure they will be using. And to the extent that there are any Democrats that break off in substantive ways uh, from the party, 
that would be my first question. <laughs> I will look at their map and look at if they think uh, they might be getting cut out of redistricting in some way, because uh, that that is the only uh, scenario at the time to- at this time that I can think of of a Democrat really selling out is is because of that. Yeah, I'm interested in the ways in which Ralston and in Duncan and and Governor Kemp use le- redistricting as leverage against Republicans and Democrats. Um, I think to some extent you could maybe see them leverage uh, district lines against Republicans who want to make too much of a fuss about the um, the false claims of voter fraud and, and want to blow up the absentee balloting uh, system that we have. But I am, I think, particularly interested in the way that they leverage this against Democrats in the instances that they can, because the thing that is shining through the political vision from Ralston and to some extent from Kemp and Duncan as well, is that if they want to maintain Republican control of the state of Georgia, they're going to have to demonstrate that they can govern. And if they, for instance, were to provide some sort of fig leaf policy win to Democrats um, and sweeten that by saying they would also protect Democrats in redistricting in exchange for yes votes on some fig leaf Democratic policy that gives Republicans a talking point to say they had this bipartisan governing success. And it takes a weapon away, a rhetorical weapon away from, for instance, a Stacey Abrams for governor campaign in 2022. That's one place where I could sort of see this playing out in a way that's beneficial to them because the signal that they're sending is they can't win by running Kelly Leffler's campaign again. And we learned that by them losing a runoff. And so now you sort of look for them to to try to leverage redistricting on the other end to burnish their bipartisan credentials um, and give themselves a little bit of a different message going into 2022. And I, I would say that that is definitely my hopeful uh, scenario because I, I am a fan of governing and even if it... Um, puts Democrats at a less advantageous political position, I would rather the state not be on fire <laughs> uh, like it felt like uh, during parts of Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue's campaign and just the constant raising of temperatures. I just don't think is good for democracy or the state of Georgia. Uh, and so, you know, with that firmly in mind, I, I am – okay if the republicans decide hey let's calm things down and like get some bipartisan stuff done (laughs) like that would be fine by me i would i would make that sacrifice because i think our arguments are stronger uh than theirs even in that scenario and uh while we will have to do more work i'm okay with that because georgia's a hard slaw (laughs) you know slog anyway uh so i am i'm totally fine if if that's the route they want to go um with that, Cal, you want you want to start talking about some specific issues that I, th- I think we've hit the the big dynamics. Yeah, yeah. So I think just to list them out here, and then we can dive into some of these individually. Um, so redistricting it is a big issue, but it is not technically a big issue for this legislative session. Um, it is likely that the redistricting session will actually happen in a special session later in the summer, and the legislature could start to host. Uh, meetings and hearings around the state as as the lines start to come out. Um, 
all of this is dependent on census data being released. And as I understand it, the census in Washington actually isn't even hitting the deadline they traditionally hit, um, which is a political problem for Donald Trump and some of the uh, interference that he wanted to run with the census. It's it's a good thing for uh, people who would like a sound census to be done. But in any event, um, this is a bit of a coming attraction for later this summer. In advance of that, in in the legislative session we're coming into on Monday, you're obviously going to have a big debate over the budget and the state of our economy in this state. Um, And then some of the holdover issues from last year's session that are going to continue to be debated, um, a repeal of the citizen's arrest law, reminder that that was a law that was claimed as a defense in the murder of Ahmad Arbery. There's an effort and potentially a bipartisan effort to repeal the citizen's arrest law in our state. We're also likely to see some pressure put on the Department of Labor by the legislature. There have been a lot of complaints about the way that the Department of Labor has distributed unemployment insurance funds and their lack of accessibility, their lack of good customer service, basically, um, that has drawn uh, the ire of Democrats. And then one thing that I think is a little bit of a sleeper issue in this legislative session is going to be efforts to expand school choice, expand private school voucher and scholarship programs. Um, Some conservatives who have been pursuing this issue under any kind of environment in recent years have said that the response from public schools, the embrace of virtual learning, and um, the struggles that have come along with that, particularly for people who have poor internet access, that all of that is a reason to give parents more options uh, for places to send their kids for an education. Um, But it definitely, to me, falls under the umbrella of never letting a crisis go to waste. These are policies that they've been pursuing for years, and I think they're likely to to reemerge in this session. Luke, are there other issues that you're looking for or any of those that stick out to you um, as ones that'll potentially be the thing we're talking about when session is over? Well, sort sort of in the other direction, a a crisis that is so far being ignored uh, by at least Republican leaders is the uh, Department of Labor has been having a really hard time getting unemployment insurance claims processed. Uh, And and I do really mean every single step of the way, uh, people will call the office and not be able to get a hold of anyone. People will have their claims accepted and be, you know, informed that they are entitled to rights and go, you know, hundreds of days without actually getting their checks. Um, It's a really, really ridiculous situation. Uh, Georgia uh, is completely unprepared uh, for this. The department apparently uh, is only prepared for 3% unemployment. Uh, and even before the crisis, we were at above 3% unemployment. And to be fair, very barely, we were at 3.1. Uh, but still, like that, that's not enough people handle it. Um, at some points, the, you know, Georgia's a strange state in this situation because we never fully shut down. And so I think our employment stayed in the teens uh, at its highest, but still, uh, they they have not handled this well at all, and there seems to be very little accountability right now uh, on the Department of Labor for not handling uh, the unemployment claims. Uh, this is not surprising to me based on Governor Kemp's antipathy towards the government doing things, um, but we will see if the elected official, uh, Mark Butler, who is the Commissioner of Labor, will uh, you know start to 
try to address these issues uh, in any way, shape, or form, or if he faces legislation from the General uh, Assembly uh, this session uh, trying to address these issues. So that's one. The one that you mentioned the most that I will be watching with the most curiosity, I think, is probably the budget, just because of the fact that um, Georgia is in this really weird situation where our economy is definitely not doing as well as it would in a not COVID world. Uh, But, you know, it is doing significantly better than some other states while the people of Georgia are suffering still. A lot of the frontline workers are not doing well. And, I mean, to me, it has been very surprising. I mean, I'm happy to see it. I think it's a good thing that you know, our government's uh, revenues are not cratering. I think that would be a really, really bad situation. Uh, But I I think we're sort of seeing the costs of Kemp's approach. You know, the the bargain he made was that we would keep Georgia open and an acceptable number of people would get sick and die in his mind, not my mind, but in his mind. And for that, we would get continued economic growth and the state revenues would not plummet. And to some extent, that seems to be true right now. But as we speak, COVID numbers are skyrocketing, and there's just not very much support coming from the state government in getting people vaccinated and taking care of the people of Georgia during this crisis. And I just wonder if there's you know some floor that's going to fall out at some point, and that these numbers are going to you know they're a mirage basically. And at some point, whether it's the you know, when income taxes come due, when we get an idea of how much actual money we ra- are going to raise from that, that there's something in this in in the budget picture that will become clear either after session or midway through session that will make whatever budget they work on now not viable. And that's what I'm really worried about. Yeah, the big wild card there is actually federal legislation. It's it's more federal relief uh, for people. Um, some of that came into clearer view with the federal relief bill that passed in December. Um, It's still unclear, I think, whether or not the federal government's going to give more financial aid to state and local governments. If they don't do that and and COVID continues to ravage the state, you could see a worsening picture for, for local government for whether or not they will furlough or fire some of their employees. Um, That would obviously add to the unemployment rate in our state and uh, create a problem for the types of services that are delivered at the state and local government level. One thing that I've seen in the press that the Appropriations Committee Chair Terry England has said is that they're still going to budget cautiously, given some of that uncertainty, what federal relief from Washington is going to look like and and how much longer before we return to, to a true normal um, at the same time, we cut $2 billion from our budget last year. We cut a billion dollars from public education. And there's going to be some discussion around how much of that gets filled back in. And I think it's urgent that as many of those cuts get filled back in as possible, given that the economy turned out to be a little bit better, or at least the revenue figures turned out to be a little bit better than uh, some of the most dire projections from from the beginning of this crisis. Um, and so that, I think, adds some intrigue to the budget to watch. Um, at the same time, you know, there should be, and I think this is another place where Democrats can force a discussion on how everyday working people are experiencing this pandemic compared to how 
businesses and top line economic numbers are experiencing this pandemic, you know, there should be an effort within spending in the budget to provide relief to people at the state level. And if our economy is doing better than we think, if there's more revenue than we anticipated, then having some of that money come back into through the state budget into programs that'll help people, whether it's student loan relief or a a state-based earned income tax credit, which essentially serves as a a tax cut for middle and lower income working people. Um, I think that Democrats ought to be pushing some of those ideas and, and making Republicans say no and highlighting that, again, the experience of businesses in this pandemic, especially large corporations, is much different than the one being experienced by frontline workers and, and people who are still working um, despite the spread of COVID. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I mean, that's that's been one of my principal frustrations with um, the current Republicans is that they have been entirely focused on, you know, continuing the the campaign slogan of Republican since 2014 of Georgia's the number one state to do business. And uh, I think the the just misconceptions abound uh, with them uh, regarding how they think the way to keep Georgia as a great place to live and work is by only helping businesses. And it's like, you have to help people as well. And, you know, I, I would be willing to consider those liability protections if workers were getting anything <laughs> in return from the state and they just aren't. And I think, that is just a you know insult adding on to injury with the insult being these liability protections and the injury being the lack of uh, easily accessible testing or vaccination in the state of Georgia for those who are in the waves of people who should be getting vaccinated. And um, just it, it's just it's so frustrating that there is this obsession with giving businesses exactly what they need more than they need all the time. And the very basic blocking and tackling of government of having people have their, have their phone, you know, answered their calls answered when they call the department of labor is just not a concern. Like they're, they're ripping their hair out about this liability issue uh, in every article I read, but I haven't heard any of them mention the unemployment issue yet because it's just they just don't care about it uh, because those people don't vote for them and those folks don't donate to their campaigns and it's just painfully obvious that that is where their concerns lie i do think on citizens arrest i think the chances are good that we get good news on that issue um i hope that that's not paired with bad news with a bad trade-off for Democrats who would like to see even more expansive police reforms. Um, this has been the the repeal of citizens arrest has been something that some Republicans, particularly uh, Republican Chuck Efstration, has worked on, has provided um, real legitimate effort into. One line I did see in a analysis written by Adam Van Bremer uh, down from the Savannah Morning News was that that's the kind of policy getting rid of citizens arrest is the kind of policy that could get paired with restrictions on local governments doing more expansive police reforms within their own jurisdictions. Um, You know, it's obvious that there are some places in Georgia that would be more willing to encourage and require 
uh, local police departments to change their practices more holistically. Um, some places are going to want to do that while other places may not. And to the extent that local governments want to have that conversation, particularly around a, a policy like policing that is very local in nature anyways, um, I hope that they're allowed to do that. Luke, sort of the last wild card to this session is actually how much of it we're going to have and is it going to proceed on a normal calendar like a normal legislative session would? I mean, that's because the possibility of, of two different things creating real significant roadblocks to lawmakers meeting for 40 days, that is the COVID-19 pandemic and whether or not they can convene 236 members of the legislature safely in Atlanta um, between now and, and the spring. And given what we saw in Washington last week, the potential that there would be security concerns at our capital in Atlanta um, and whether or not, I mean, surely, hopefully we do not see scenes in Atlanta like we saw in Washington, but certainly there will be groups, potentially Trump backers who show up at the Capitol in Atlanta or somewhere around it and want to at least register their own discontent with the way the election turned out in November. Yeah, well, let's start with the security concerns. This has been an interesting story for me and one that I've been watching because I remember earlier in the year uh, before the November election, I had a lot of my Democratic friends uh, get very concerned with the increased security, increased fencing at the Capitol and, you know, people taking it as a, they're afraid of folks on the left about it. And as time has gone on, it really feels like they're more afraid of their own people than they are of us uh, with, with these security concerns. And uh, rightfully so, because, you know, at least to my knowledge, there have not been a significant number of uh, left-leaning folks sending uh, Brad Raffensperger and Brian Kemp death threats where there's been lots of Trumpers uh, doing that lately. And uh, I know just from some of the state reps I talked to, they've been bombarded with emails emails from people saying stop the steal and you know that you're all you're all traitors and we're coming to get you and all that kind of stuff so i mean wednesday is make it very clear that you have to take that stuff seriously and to the extent that the legislature is taking it seriously i i'm i'm glad to see that because i think it's it, it's a delicate balance between having an accessible legislature where people can go and talk to their reps and have their concerns heard and those things and balancing security concerns. And you can go too far in, in the wrong direction. Um, I, I, I don't know where the balance is right now, uh, to be honest, uh, because the thing is, is like, well, I have vehement disagreements with Kemp and Raffensperger and a lot of the Republicans. The absolute last thing I want is to any of them get hurt. And so, since tensions are so high right now and the, you know, the Republican far right elements have proven themselves to uh, have insurrectionist tendencies and violent tendencies. I mean, I, I I'm okay with them going a little overboard on the security right now. And I will give them the benefit of the doubt on that issue. I, I really will. And uh, it, when things calm down, maybe we can, you know, pull some things back and, Take in the other direction, but I think for right now, let, let's better, you know, better safe than sorry. 
with COVID, it's already not going to be a normal session. Uh, I have a lot of friends who work in, in the CLOB or the CLOB or the Coverdale Legislative Office Building. I always like to call it the CLOB. Um, and you can't you can't actually go this year, which is uh, really, really sucks. I mean, both you and I, Kyle, worked with uh, State Representative Spencer Fry and his excellent legislative uh, program, fellowship program. Um, and you know, I got to spend a whole session up there with him. And that was I mean, unquestionably one of the most fun experiences of my life and very helpful professionally. And I learned a lot and has really, you know, driven my passion for that and uh, has driven a lot of other students passion. I've seen uh, who, you know, have gone really, really far after being part of that program. And a key part of that, I think, was getting to work at the legislative session on the premises. And that's just not available at all. I mean, I, I don't think they're really letting any legislative staff work in the Capitol this year, uh, which sucks because uh, that's just such a great opportunity for mostly college students. Uh, there's, I mean, there's some people I know that are, uh, you know, kind of lifers that uh, have been working at the Capitol for many, many years, but uh, most of the people I saw up there were up there for one session as part of their college education. And like missing that opportunity is just, uh, I hate it. I hate it for them because there's so many great programs that got students up there. So that, that that's the first thing I'd say is we've already lost that. And then the other thing too, and uh, this will kind of be kind of be funny uh, since we're uh, complaining about how undemocratic things are a lot and talking about how the system doesn't work. I mean, one thing I've always actually appreciated about politics is the wheeling dealing and the, you know, negotiations and, you know, talking to people and trying, you know, convince them to support your bill. And it's just going to be so much harder to do that safely this year, you know, because you just can't get in people's faces the way you, you used to be able to do. And I think that's, that's going to have a real cost this session. I'm not really sure how it's going to play out. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm really curious to see how that will, will work out because so much of the legislature is like chasing down some state rep and trying to get them to sign onto your bill or at least not vote against it. And yeah, like all that work is going to be really hard to do safely. And I, I'm appreciative that Ralston is taking this seriously. I've paid more attention to the house as, as I always do. And I know he's taking it seriously and that they are um, mandating the wearing of masks and they are trying to do some social distancing. And I just think it's going to make it a lot harder. And I, I hate that for our state because I think it will result in less getting done. Well, I mean, maybe it will facilitate Ralston and maybe to some extent Duncan too in holding back some of the crazy elements of their caucus during this session. At the same time, though, the the type of people who uh, would violate COVID protocols to do something that would put legislators' health at risk are the kinds of people who don't take COVID seriously, and they seem to be the same kinds of people who are screaming about non-existent election fraud. So that'll be something uh, to watch. I did also notice one uh, interesting thing to, to keep in mind about this session is, is that if there is an outbreak of COVID at the Capitol, you know, we are close to distributing vaccines and, and there could be rationale for them to pause or delay session until they can actually get uh, most or all of the legislature vaccinated. Um, that is, I think, a potential wild card in terms of timing to keep an eye on. If, you know, like you said, I've, I've been impressed with Ralston's uh, 
management of the house in terms of following protocols on COVID. And, and I read through some of the memos that they published on how they're going to do the logistics of, of legislating. They're going to have tablets for some members to vote on when they're not on the floor of the chamber. There, there seem to be a lot of good ideas put into place to facilitate social distancing, but it is an enclosed environment. Um, and it is uh, a risk that they take convening together. And it's one that may not be worth taking if they can get a vaccine to everybody in the legislature. Um, and that may be something that we confront uh, in February or March. Um, so we will be watching all of this moving forward. Uh, we're going to be back to sort of our regular programming on legislative session, something that I'm grateful that is here because it just feels a little more normal and hopefully a little more productive. Um, but you will hear about all of this from us uh, all the way through the spring, all the way through the special redistricting session likely to happen this summer. And if it gets delayed, we'll be here. We'll be here until they hit day 40. Alrighty, y'all. With that, we are going to leave it there and we will talk to you again soon. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.